This is the Hoove It or Lose It podcast, hosted by Pastor Andy Hoover. Well, my name is Andy Hoover. I'm one of the pastors at the Dayspring Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm grateful to be here with you this morning. We love Pastor Jeremy and his wife and kids. I've known Jeremy for many years. Uh, we attended camp together, uh, worked at uh, Ohio State Youth Convention. He was in Ohio for many years, as you know. And uh, love Jeremy so much and just so greatly appreciate the opportunity uh, to be here with you this morning. I'm here with my wife, Sarah, my beautiful wife of uh, 18 years, uh, coming up here in August. We have two sons, uh, both in high school. Please pray for us. Um, Both in high school and they're involved in sports and church and band and uh, you can't name something my kids aren't involved in. Uh, So we put on a lot of miles, but we're grateful for them and for the journey we get to have together. Well, the year was 1997. The band was a group known as DC Talk. Anybody? The album was entitled Welcome to the Freak Show. The song on that album was entitled, What If I Stumble? The song lyrics centered around a question that I believe many of us struggle with on a regular basis. What happens when I screw up? What happens when I fail? What happens when I fall short of God's expectations for my life? What happens when I allow a vulgar word to fly from my mouth at work? What happens when I lose my patience with my children or with my spouse? What happens? The opening monologue of that song was a quote by the American author Brennan Manning who said this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and yet walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. He says that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I think we can all identify with that feeling. We can all go back to a time, perhaps even in recent memory, where we have flat out blown it. We don't hear amens very often there. Appreciate that. We were presented perhaps with an opportunity to share our faith with an unsaved loved one or co-worker. And in the midst of that opportunity, we chickened out and we just walked away. We lost our cool and set a terrible example for our children. We flipped out on our spouse. We got involved in a conversation at work that... To paraphrase Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, it was not 
true. It was not noble. It was not right. It was not pure. It was not lovely. It was not admirable. It was not excellent and certainly not worthy of praise. I mean, to be honest, maybe even more than sometimes, church, if we're really honest with ourselves, we struggle. We struggle to live the life that we know that God has called us to, to live the life that we know, church, that God has mapped out for us. And even though we know what we should be doing, we quickly and easily identify with the struggle that the writer of so much of the New Testament, Paul, dealt with. When he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I mean, what is that about? What, what that's about, church, is that we all fail. We've all fallen short. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, a familiar passage, I'm sure to many of you, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, God says clearly, this is the standard by which I have created you to live and to love and to find your existence. And this is the standard by which I want you, God says, to interact with other humans. And as God looks around and he observes his creation, he sees that we fall short, church, of what we were created to do. And listen, how were we, we were created to live. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen? The reality, church, is that our sin is great. But I want you to hear this this morning. I want you to receive this this morning. I want you to embrace this this morning, church. While our sin is great, I am here to proclaim to you this morning that our Savior is greater. God, in his greatness, created a way out. He created an avenue by which we can be saved from our sinfulness. He provided the scapegoat. He provided the, the perfect sacrifice that you and I can then be made right in God's sight. Otherwise, on our own, we cannot be made right in his sight. And it's through the person and the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ who died on a cross in our place. Jesus took the punishment, church, that you and I, that you and I deserve. And this morning, for just a few moments, I'd like to speak to you about having a renewed hope. As we develop in our relationship with God, we eventually realize that while we are forgiven, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there comes from time to time moments where we screw up. As I mentioned a moment ago, sometimes we're not the model employee, or we're not the model employer, or we're not the model parent, or we're not the model spouse, or we're not the model neighbor. And we run the risk when we screw up over and over again. We begin to run the risk, church, that we can start losing hope. As a parent of two high school boys, 
I've come to realize, uh, you know, we're in uh, the beginning of April. The school year is kind of winding down. The school year is kind of winding down, and I've come to realize that the beginning of the school year and the end of the school year are different. Amen? You know, at the beginning of the school year, things look different. I, I came across some pictures. Here's a picture of the beginning of the school year lunch. Okay, this is the beginning of the school year lunch. This is what it looks like. It's beautiful, it's packed, it's made, it's ready, it's good to go. The kids are excited, it's healthy, it's balanced. It's the beginning of the school year lunch, amen? This is the end of the school year lunch. Here's some goldfish in a baggie, just go to school. I got to thinking about homework signatures Remember those? You had to sign the homework. You had to sign the form. This is the beginning of the school year signature right here. Beginning of the school year signature. Joan Smith. It's not my name. It's the beginning of the school year. You take your time. You spell it out very clearly so the teacher knows who you are. And then towards the end of the school year, your signature begins to look like this. Maybe the school bake sale. Remember the school bake sale? How many of you loved when the school bake sale came? I love shopping at the school bake sale, period. I don't enjoy baking anything or having to bake anything for the school bake sale. But at the beginning of the school year, when they announced the school bake sale, this is what you get. This is what my kids get at the beginning of the school bake sale. Beginning of the school year, bake sale, this is what it looks like. End of the school year, bake sale, this is what it looks like. <laughs> See, things change. Church, I want to suggest to you this morning that there are some parallels between those pictures and our spiritual journey. I think, you know, we all start out on fire for God. We start out on fire for God and the world is full of possibilities for this, this full life that we're following him or we're right on his heels and, and we're with him in our whole being and we're constantly immersed in his word. We have these visions of being constantly immersed in his word and constantly being immersed in having this vibrant prayer life. And we enter this relationship with Jesus, right? And our expectations are through the roof. And we imagine ourselves being immersed in scripture and knowing exactly what God would have us to do no matter the situation. We're so connected to him, we know that when this situation arises, this is what we're going to do because we've studied the scripture and we know and we, and we just anticipate this, this intimate, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. But then life begins to happen. Life begins to happen and we realize that we're not always immersed in scripture as we know we should be. And life begins to happen and our prayer life isn't as detailed and as intimate as we had once thought it was going to be. And we realize as life begins to happen that, that sometimes we still struggle with, with our patience. We still struggle with our patience or perhaps our, our level of honesty in the workplace or on our taxes We sometimes still struggle with our anger or our patience level. And if we're not careful, church, it's in those moments that we begin to lose hope and we start to believe the lie that God can't use me anymore. So how do we handle the screw-ups? How do we handle those spiritual meltdowns? What is it that God requires of us when we fall short? 
I mean, we know that ultimately Christ has taken the punishment for us, and we know that ultimately we're saved because of the sacrifice of Jesus. But listen, church, here's the question. What's required of us in that restoration process? Listen to what we glean from the prophet Micah. In the book so named, prophet Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, 7, and 8, with what shall I come before the Lord? And bow down before the exalted God. Shall I come with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then he says this, church. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, what I love about the Word of God, church, is that there are passages that, while there are passages that can be difficult to wrap our minds around, there are other passages that are plain. There are other passages that are simple. And listen, church, they are just ripe for the picking. I mean, let's think for a minute about some of the difficult passages in Scripture. Perhaps one, Psalm 137.9, happy is the one who takes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. Church, we're going to need some interpretation there. Amen? There's obviously some interpretation needed there. What about 2 Kings when Elisha, uh, the children are making fun of Elisha and he, and he curses them and two bears come out and maul 42 children. Listen, church, we're going to need some interpretation there. We're going to have to dig back a little bit. We're going to have to peel back some layers to figure out what God is saying to us there. But here's what I love about this passage in Micah. This isn't one of those. This is one of those parts of Scripture, church, that is plain and it's simple. He says, here's what you don't do. That's what Micah says. Here's what you don't do. He makes clear to the church that God isn't interested only in our works. He's not interested in you and I just making some sort of, some sort of sacrifice. He's not interested in, in you even giving a large sacrifice. Notice what it says. Notice what it says. The passage says, what about thousands of rams? And then he kicks it up a notch and he says, what about, what about 10,000 rivers of olive oil? And then he goes up even another notch and he says, well, what about sacrificing your firstborn? Would God be pleased with that? Would, would that satisfy God? Friends, aren't we sometimes guilty of this line of thinking? I mean, have you ever dropped some offering in the plate because you felt guilty and you thought that maybe in some way, shape, or form that might just make God a little happier with you? I mean, have you ever signed up for some service project or to volunteer in some area of the church that you really don't like and you really don't care to volunteer in, but you thought to yourself, well, maybe, just maybe God will be pleased with me. Listen, church, what God really wants isn't your work. What he wants is your heart. He desires for us to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with him. And the prophet Micah says, this is the formula for restoring hope 
to the hopeless. Why is that? Why is it, how is it possible that just walking humbly and, 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 and loving mercy and walking with God, how is it possible that that's the formula for restoring hope? Listen, church, here's why that's possible, because that's what you and I were created to do. That's our purpose. And when you're living your purpose, church, you can't help but be full of hope. I said earlier that our sin is great, and as a result, our hopelessness can be great. It can be massive. It can seem insurmountable. But also, like I said earlier, church, I want us to remember that while our our hopelessness is great, our Savior is greater. And who better, church, than to restore our hopelessness than the originator of hope? Amen? Who better to restore our hopelessness than the very source of all eternal hope? God himself. Think with me for a moment about one of the the greatest examples of hopelessness in all of Scripture. The disciple Peter. I mean, what a screw-up, right? I mean, what a slouch this Peter was. What a no-good, good-for-nothing, yellow-bellied coward. Peter. Listen to the words that are recorded in the book of Luke, chapter 22, for us. Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. I mean, can you imagine just for a moment, imagine just for a moment the level of shock and horror that Peter felt at that moment. I mean, can you imagine that just for a moment? Imagine for a moment the level of shock and horror that Peter felt at that very moment. He was confident at that moment, church, that he would live the rest of his life for Jesus Christ. He was confident that there was nothing in all of eternity, in all of the world, that would ever be able to deter him in his relationship with Jesus Christ. And here Jesus is telling him that by the next morning, the next morning, Peter, before tomorrow morning, you are going to deny that you even know me. Not once, not twice, but three times. And you, of course, you, of course, know how things unfolded for Peter a few verses later. Chapter 22, beginning in verse 54, so they arrested him, speaking of Jesus, and led him to the high priest's home, and Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him by the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No, man, I am not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them, one of them, because, because he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you are talking about. And listen, church, immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, at that moment, the scripture says the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And suddenly the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, 
you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard, weeping bitterly. I mean, talk about a momentous failure. I mean, this was huge. Peter had gone from from confident Christ follower to a scared deserter overnight. I mean, what's interesting to me about this this passage and about this account, if you really study this, it's interesting to me because there's a progression there. And I want to point this out to you in case you missed it. Notice what he says at the beginning of the section. So they arrested him, speaking of Jesus, they arrested him and they led him to the high priest's home. And listen to this, church. The scripture says this, and Peter followed at a distance. Peter doesn't jump ship right away. He doesn't jump ship right away, but listen to what he does, church. He just kind of takes a step back. He doesn't run the opposite direction. He just just hangs back in the shadows for a few moments. I mean, isn't that true of us as well? I mean, nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, you know, today's the day that I'm going to cash in the chips on my relationship with Jesus. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know, today's the day. Today's the day that I desert Christ. No, church. It always starts small. It always starts small. It always happens inch by inch. And slowly, slowly but surely, inch by inch, we begin to distance ourselves and how we do our taxes. We begin to distance ourselves and how we treat our coworkers. We begin to distance ourselves from what the Word of God says and how we should be a spouse, a husband, or a wife, a mother, or a father, a grandfather, a grandmother, a church member, a volunteer, a follower of Christ. Slowly but surely, church, we begin to distance ourselves from what God really has for us. I mean, Peter experiences this this momentous failure, and there's no doubt, church, that this, this level of failure, this momentous failure, stuck with Peter for the rest of his life. But let's think for a moment about that word, momentous. When something is momentous, it stands out, right? It embeds itself in our memory. It was momentous, church, not just because Peter had failed. It was momentous because it was predicted that he would fail. I mean, Peter should have known exactly what was coming. I mean, after all, Jesus told him, Peter, this is going to happen. I mean, why wasn't Peter on guard? He should have known exactly what to look for. He should have seen the warning signs. He should have known Jesus predicted that it would happen. He told him, Peter, you're going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times. I mean, why wasn't Peter prepared? Not only does he fail church, but he fails in a momentous way. His failure, it's interesting, his failure is not even sprinkled with a little success. It's one failure right after the other, after the other. It's a momentous failure. In Matthew's version of this account, it said, suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And then the scripture says, and he went away 
weeping bitterly. Peter had lost hope. He knew he had failed. He could do nothing more than walk away, hanging his head, weeping bitterly. Does that sound familiar? Church, I'm here to tell you this morning, with all honesty and a healthy dose of humility, that describes me. Sometimes I'm a failure when it comes to meeting God's expectations for my life. Sometimes my kids don't see the fruit of patience in my life. Sometimes my beautiful wife doesn't experience the love that I know that I'm commanded to give her according to Scripture. Sometimes I fail. And to be honest with you, sometimes for me personally, it's difficult to not become hopeless. It's difficult not to lose hope. And as I look at my life and the areas of my life that I know that I need to grow in, I sometimes begin to feel that hopelessness. And maybe for you, it's not a struggle with your children. Maybe for you, it's not a struggle with your spouse. Maybe it's something related to honesty in the workplace or, as we mentioned, our taxes or how to be a good neighbor or how to live a, a, pure, a pure life and have a pure thought life. Whatever it is for you, listen to church, this is what it is. It's failure. It's momentous failure. And with failure comes hopelessness. But church, here's the good news. Here's the good news. Our lives don't have to end in failure. Our lives don't have to end in hopelessness. Peter's life didn't end in hopelessness and failure. Peter goes on to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, church, in a way that up until that point in history was completely unparalleled. He is proclaiming the gospel to thousands of people. It had not been done in that way before. But Peter was at the helm of the ship. Jesus Christ takes our momentous failure. And listen, church, he takes our momentous failure and he turns it into momentous restoration. See, God is never satisfied with our failure. God's never satisfied with his creation, the creation that he created in his image. He's never satisfied, church, with us living hopeless lives. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to be hopeless. And listen to this, church. Listen to how Jesus seeks out his disciples. Boy, we just celebrated the resurrection last Sunday, Amen. Jesus died on the cross for my sins and for your sins and he comes back from the grave just like he said he'd come back from the grave and when he comes out of the grave, church, listen to what he says. This is what he says. Mark chapter 16. Listen to how he seeks out the disciples. But the angels said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. 
He was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where his body laid. And listen to this, church. Don't miss this this morning. And then it says this. Now go and tell his disciples, listen, comma, including Peter. That Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. And you will see him there just as he told you before he died. Church, I don't believe this was a coincidence. I don't think this was the angel of the Lord just casually mentioning, uh, yeah, tell some of the disciples, oh yeah, maybe Peter too. No, church, I don't believe this was a coincidence. I believe this was God communicating directly to Peter to say, Peter, I haven't forgotten about you. He wanted Peter to know that despite his failure, despite his lapse in courage, despite his cowardice, God wasn't finished with him yet. Church, that's the message for you and I today. God is not done with you. As an individual, he's not done with you as a church. God is bigger than your failure. God is bigger than your screw-up. God is bigger and stronger and more powerful and more impactful and, 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 and more magnanimous than the biggest blunder you could ever experience in your life. It's like God is saying your name instead of Peter's name. Just substitute your name for Peter's name in that sentence. Now go ahead and tell the disciples, including. Look at your neighbor. Look at your neighbor and say that phrase to him. Insert their name in there. Now go ahead and tell the disciples, including, and then put your neighbor's name in there. You see, church, even on our most hopeless days, God stands in the gap and he carries us through. Even when we feel like all hope is lost, God says, I'm not finished just yet. But here's the awesome part, if it could get any better. God not only grants us hope when we're hopeless, but he offers us fellowship. He's saying, hey, I want to be with you. I want to do life with you. I mean, think about the power of that idea. These were men, church, including Peter, all of the disciples that, that abandoned Jesus when the going got tough. And Peter doesn't just turn tail and run and hide in the shadows. He, he denies Christ three times. And yet in the midst of that, in the midst of his failure, Jesus looks at Peter and he gives an invitation for Peter to rejoin the team. Jesus wants to restore fellowship with you. His love is unchanging, church, and his mercy endures forever. Some of you here this morning have turned in your gear. Some of you here this morning have stepped away from the team because you feel as though you've disqualified yourself. Some of you here this morning have hung up your spiritual cleats. Some of you here this morning have turned in your jersey because you've convinced yourself that God is done with you. Hear this this morning. God is not done with you. He is reaching out. 
He is calling your name and he is desperately, desperately wanting to restore your hope. Thanks for listening to the Hoove It or Lose It podcast. For more information or resources, visit www.hooveitorloseit.com or on Facebook at Hoove It or Lose It. 